I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. I'm a medical writer and patient educator who lives with a J-pouch due to ulcerative colitis. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 123. If you live with an IBD or are a care partner, you've probably had people tell you that you're strong or that they don't know how you manage everything. I think in most cases, people mean well, but at times it can be frustrating because we feel as though we don't have any other choice. We didn't ask to be ill, and we have to find a way to thrive through it because it's not like there's another option. You may have heard this word resilience being used to describe people with IBD or other people with chronic illness or disabilities, but what does it mean to be resilient? To find out more about the concept of resilience, I speak with Mara Shapiro. Mara is a medical journalist who lives with Crohn's disease. Her journey is complicated because IBD wasn't the first chronic illness she was diagnosed with. She's thought deeply about the concept of resilience and how she applies it to her life. Her experiences provide a roadmap for the rest of us as we navigate the ups and downs of IBD and how it affects our lives. Mara, thank you so much for coming on about IBD. I'm really excited to speak with you today about your journey. Yeah, thank you so much, Amber, for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Would you start off by just giving a brief introduction and tell our listeners who you are and what your diagnosis is? Hi, I'm Mara. Um, I live with Crohn's disease, and I'm currently a medical journalist and patient journalist uh, for Trellis Health. And I live in Charlottesville, Virginia with Morty, the three-year-old Corgi. I have, of course, read a lot of your writing and preparing to speak to you today. So I knew that you're a relatively recently diagnosed Crohn's disease patient, but your journey goes far back with other things, which you're going to tell us about. So in your writing, I saw that you described yourself as a complicated patient. That is an understatement, even in the Crohn's disease world. So I wonder if you would take me back a few years to your teen years and go through the things that led up to your being diagnosed with Crohn's disease, because that was not your first diagnosis, unfortunately. Yeah, um, this is funny. This is like nerve wracking, like going to a new doctor in a sense and having to go through your medical history. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, mostly in a good way Hopefully because well, I'm in be control. Cathartic. Yes, yeah. I'm in control here. Um, and it's not, I'm not, I don't need you to help me with anything. So it's definitely fun. But yeah, a lot of my medical journey is very complex and complicated and I would say really non linear. Um, And oftentimes I struggle to kind of see myself and a lot of other, you know, patients sharing their stories um, and struggle to kind of relate to other patient advocates in a sense because of my rather interesting slew of comorbidities. And I feel like we don't talk about this kind of nonlinear, difficult journey um, that a lot of us deal with um, as much. I had a relatively healthy childhood, um, but when I was 13, I was diagnosed with asthma. I was an athlete all my life, playing all, all sorts of sports, and then all of a sudden one day started wheezing and turning blue and struggling to breathe and was kind of diagnosed with asthma, had to go on all these medications for that. Um, And that was definitely difficult for me. Like I said, coming from not really having any health issues prior to that to now, you know, struggling to play sports um, and, you know, 
go do PE in school. It felt like at the moment, like a life altering, terrible thing. Wow. So even even PE in school was difficult. Your asthma was that pronounced. Oh, yeah, I was. I would have to I had PE first period in middle school and I would push myself so hard in PE that I would have to then go to the nurse, take a lot of albuterol and oftentimes have to go home because I couldn't sit in math class afterwards because I'd be like jittery and shaking and still having trouble breathing and coughing. And it just hit the point where even like the school nurse was like, I think you need to get a note to get out of PE because Mm -hmm. Mara doesn't know how to take it easy. And then when I was 16, I was diagnosed with POTS and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, the genetic connective tissue disorder. What does POTS stand for, by the way? Because I always forget. (laughs) Yeah. So POTS stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's a form of dysautonomia or an autonomic Mm -hmm. nervous system dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, Really common. I feel like a relatively common comorbidity for other patients with other chronic illnesses. Um, For me, um, I struggled a lot with tachycardia um, and a lot of fatigue. And I managed that condition primarily for those few years um, with IV saline infusions. When I was 16, I was also treated for latent tuberculosis that was found when I applied to volunteer at my local children's hospital. Um, And I struggled a lot through that antibiotic treatment. So basically, they found that I had been exposed to TB at some point in my life, and it was walled off. I know a lot of patients with IBD, you you hear, oh, you have to go get tested for TB before you start these biologics. So basically, I went through the nine months of antibiotic treatment to kind of kill this, you know, dormant TB infection. After that treatment, when I was about 17, I developed recurrent C. diff many times. So kept getting C. diff, was on vancomycin for like four to five months at one point. Looking back, not really sure why I didn't go through with the fecal transplant, still something that we're discussing and is on the table currently for me. Um, So kind of at that time was when the GI issues started to become a big problem, but we could never really figure out what was going on. But really, I was just struggling with nausea, stomach pain, diarrhea on and off, really just having a hard time eating. I was really malnourished and struggling um, to just get calories in at that time. And so then um, my Crohn's diagnosis comes into the picture as the pandemic starts, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. So when I was 20, um, I was diagnosed with iron deficiency anemia, and that was kind of what I think finally got people to take things seriously. Um, I also have a family history of IBD. So it was a little Uh, interesting that, you know, given that my uncle has severe UC um, and a few other cousins that it it took so long to kind of get people running, running the right tests. During the time of the pandemic, kind of this was, you know, spring 2020, right when things were pretty bad, it was really hard to get um, non-emergent procedures scheduled. So we kind of all decided, let's head to Mayo Clinic. So me, my dad and Morty, took off on a road trip to Rochester, Minnesota. Unfortunately, the first week we were there, we didn't really find anything. We did a lot of tests and kind of figured out what it wasn't. Um, and that was really frustrating. I was home maybe for about 10 days, two weeks, and things got worse. My symptoms got a lot worse. So they said, how quickly can you get back here? Two days later, we got back in the car, drove another 1,800 miles back to Rochester, Minnesota. Oh. And that was when I was kind of like, okay, like I'm not leaving until we figure out what's going on because this is just, this is exhausting. Ridiculous. This is yeah. ridiculous. So finally did a CT enterography, showed, you know, a lot of inflammation and scarring in my ileum. 
did the colonoscopy, was like, well, th there we go. Like, you have Crohn's. And um, I remember crying when I woke up from the procedure and my the doctor was confused. And he was like, y you're, you're going to be OK. Like, he thought I was upset because yeah. I was of the diagnosis. of the diagnosis. And I was like, no, you just gave me my life back. Right. Um, and I think that was really interesting. And I kind of reflect on on that that story and that narrative a lot in my writing because that feeling of relief when you get a diagnosis like this after so many years of not knowing is a really powerful feeling. And that's the that's the Crohn's story in a nutshell. Tuberculosis is common in other parts of the world. But it is not a common thing in the United States. Like, that's how did that happen? Like, what do you think happened? How did you pick up tuberculosis? It's a very good question. <laughs> one, uh, one that I wish I had a better answer to because um, when we talk a little bit about my adrenal insufficiency and my Addison's disease diagnosis, we're still really not sure what happened there either and what kind of yeah. triggered this. Um, you know, shutting down of my adrenal glands. And perhaps there's a potential link um, to tuberculosis being the cause of that as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. I did have done some international travel in my life and in my early okay. years. My little sister is adopted from China. So okay. in 2005, um, I did travel with my parents um, to China for a few weeks to adopt um, my sister, Leah. And I've done, you know, visited South Africa to see some family um, in 2015. My pulmonologist at the time did tell me that she thought I had just as high of a risk of catching it um, there in Orange County, California. So I'm not really sure what she meant by no. that. Had there been okay. a lot of, you know, local cases, but it is something that needs, yeah. it's not like COVID where you can be around someone for a short period of time and catch it. Right. To my knowledge, tuberculosis is something you need more, you know, kind of a repeated um, longer term exposure, but it's a very, very questionable part of my journey still that makes me scratch my head to this day. Let's talk for a minute about the idea of resilience, which is something that you feature a lot in your own writing. How would you define resilience for yourself in your life? And how do you hold space for it in the context of chronic illness? Yeah, so I've loved the concept of resilience, I think, for as long as I can remember, long before I met Dr. Lori Kiefer and heard about Trellis and it's and how um, they're applying resilience to the study of chronic illness. Um, I lost my mom to stage four breast cancer when I was eight years old. Um, and losing losing a parent as a child is is quite traumatic and a really difficult um, experience, you know, that's impacted my life in a lot of really big, undeniable ways. Um, it's made me the person I am today, but it's still still something that is is a really hard part of my life. But what it what it did teach me is, is how to be resilient. I feel like as a as a child, I was left with no other choice, or at least that's the way I've always looked at it. You know, I feel like resilience is been baked into me um, from dealing with that experience and kind of imprinted on me at such an early age that it's now this really strong, like core guiding principle in my life. So 
going through that part of my life to now dealing with chronic illness and having to um, figure out how to, how, to, how to keep going through some really difficult experiences. I definitely feel like I've leaned into that mentality of sometimes life is really hard, but we still have a life to live and we can't really change. You know, I can't change the fact that my mom isn't here and I wish with every ounce of my being that she was, but I have to, I have to keep going anyway. Um, and that's always kind of just been the way that, that I've approached life. So kind of with chronic illness and there's obviously, you know, a grief associated with that and some sadness and anger and frustration over this isn't fair. I really wish that I didn't have to deal with this. But you have to be super thankful that that you are here to deal with that. So that's definitely kind of a little bit of my background on resilience and kind of how I've come to recognize resilience with chronic illness because of the experience I've had. You know, so I can say that, you know, continuing on with, you know, joy and purpose and finding passion um, despite some intense suffering is something that I've I've kind of done for a really long time. So applying it to, you know, multiple chronic health conditions has been challenging, but felt very natural to me in a sense. Mm -hmm. You know, so the same way I'm resilient with my grief, I feel like um, is kind of how I am with my chronic illness in a sense. Um, there's moments where I'm sad. And there's moments that it's not all sunshines and rainbows, but that doesn't mean that you can't still be resilient. I feel like that's one of the things I feel really strongly about this idea of resilience is it's it's a spectrum and it's not all or nothing. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that it's this all or nothing mindset over you're either resilient or you're not. And if you're not resilient, you can't ever be resilient. And I don't think that's true at all. You know, resilience is like a muscle that you flex and you work on in the gym, no different than anything else. And um, it's something that always has room for improvement and growth. And no one can really claim they're resilient 100% of the time. And I don't think anyone is asking that of anyone, but it's very easy to kind of get yourself into this mindset of, well, because I struggle with being resilient or bouncing back from some of my struggles, it doesn't mean that I can't always be that. For me, resilience is this practice almost, um, and it's a, it's a mindset more so than anything. One of my favorite coping statements and when I'm you know thinking about being resilient is no matter what happens, I have the strength and the tools to overcome it. And for me, that's resilience. You know, believing in that statement, living that statement um, is one of the simplest ways that I try to integrate resilience into my life with chronic illness. And what I'm really telling myself behind that statement is I've been through a lot. I've learned a lot. And while things may get scary and difficult, I have the ability to use what I've learned to get me through whatever challenges come my way. Yeah. So your early experiences, unfortunately, I mean, it's unfortunate that you've had to learn how to be resilient. You've had to learn how to cope with grief. Being diagnosed with multiple conditions as you are, it is a new process every time of going through that grief and then flexing that resilience muscle again. But hopefully you have not yet begun to feel as though that muscle is being overworked. And so I want to push you a little bit more on the idea of resilience, because I'm seeing this theme in the online chronic illness community. And there are some people who feel differently about this word resilience. 
I think it is another side effect of the pandemic and the collective trauma that we're all living through. And so I think some people have concerns about the expectation about resilience and that people who live with chronic illness need to be resilient, but that there's also something to be said for expecting more from the people around us or from our healthcare providers and setting healthy boundaries. What do you think about finding that balance between boundaries and resilience and expecting more from the people that are around us? So what would you say to that idea or what would you say to those people? Yeah, I think balance is a, is a key word here. Um, and there there is a way to find that balance, I feel like, at least at least from where I'm standing in this. And in essence, I feel like, you know, some of this talk about resilience can seem like this hokey pokey psychology, and that's fine. People, people will get where they need to be, however they need to get there. And I used to meet a lot of these sorts of mindsets with a fair deal of skepticism, too. I'm definitely someone who, you know, you're right, is like, well, what's wrong with the system if everyone's expecting people with chronic illness to just walk around smiling and not complaining all the time? Totally. The coping statement you may land on is going to likely look a lot different than mine, but the underlying theme of reflecting on your your strength and your ability to persevere will likely be the same and in and in essence that's what resilience is is finding your inner strength in what you've already overcome to keep overcoming as chronic illness patients we're not really taught or encouraged to really recognize that strength as often as we should and but everyone has it because we're all doing it we're all persevering and overcoming in our own way. And that doesn't always have to look pretty and packaged and, and, and put together. It's how you're taking those experiences in, into your life and, and learning from them that I feel like is, is at the core of this idea of being resilient with chronic illness. Another common misconception is that resilience is, in a sense, like invalidating people's suffering, right? Mm-hmm. This yeah. idea that, you know, if you're called resilient, that your your illness isn't valid or your pain isn't real. I think that's also an idea maybe that is, is seeping in from some of our healthcare providers. And, and that's, again, I want to say, hopefully not what's actually being said to patients, because Again, resilience isn't asking you to ignore your suffering. It's suggesting a way to accept and coexist with that suffering in a productive way. You know, we can't really control the the physical suffering that that we live with as a result of our chronic illness, but we can control and kind of shape the way that the emotional suffering plays into that physical suffering. And I think that resilience is a key aspect in in, in kind of finding that balance between you know, what we can control and what we can't control. But again, it's something that you have to believe within yourself. And when you're getting all these external pressures from social media, from your care team, from other patients, it's very hard, I think, for someone to think, how does resilience fit into my life? But really at the at the core, it's it's a self-belief and it's a mindset you have to work and within yourself. And it's help it maybe it's helpful for someone to be like, hey, you're resilient. But really that's not going to unlock the true power of this resilience mindset until you as an individual can understand and accept it within the context of your own journey 
But what I can say is with the right support and guidance and learning to live with this resilience focused mindset can really pay these incredible dividends to overall quality of life and sense of well-being. And we also now have this really great body of clinical research that's being done by Dr. Kiefer and Dr. Dubinsky and the team at Mount Sinai showing that resilience outcomes are leading to incredible improvements in, in IBD care, which is really exciting to see as well. Mara, you're active in the chronic illness community, and you've worn so many hats. Some of the groups you've worked with include Crohn's and Colitis Young Adults Network, Generation Patient, and now Trellis Health. Tell me about these groups, and tell me a little bit about some of the work that you've done with them. Yeah, so I'm I'm so thrilled to, over the last few years, really grow my, my involvement in patient advocacy. It's done it's done a lot for me, not just um, in kind of growing more social support and community, um, but really kind of helped me narrow in on my, you know, professional interests and passions as well. Um, and, you know, Generation Patient and the Crohn's and Colitis and Adult Network really has changed my life. And I found them incidentally on Instagram two years ago when I was working on my honors thesis and IBD um, looking at chronicity and identity and burnout and trauma and all of those things. And um, I found them through a post they had made about medical PTSD, I believe, on a talk mm -hmm. they had done with Dr. Tiffany Taft. And mm -hmm. it just really sparked my interest. And um, so I applied. Then I applied to the CCYN fellowship program for 2022 and was selected. And in a sense, the rest is history. Um, and I know my involvement with CCYN and Generation Patient will only continue to grow. It's truly incredible what Sneha and the team um, have done to not just foster this strong sense of community um, across the globe, but um, also to advocate for this incredible actionable change and my favorite type of advocacy is really what we're doing with these organizations, which is advocating for change for young adult patients as young adult patients ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's really exciting to see all the support that we also have from our medical advisory board and other um, members of the community and other patient advocates like yourself, Amber. It's really incredible um, to, to feel welcomed into a space like this and to have our voices really heard um, we're doing a lot of health policy work now and health policy education through Generation mm -hmm. Patient. And that's truly incredible um, to, to not just learn, but to really be involved in some legislative action happening as well. And and I definitely encourage any other patient advocates um, to get involved with with what we're doing over here. So. Um, yeah, I did get introduced um, to Trellis Health kind of through CCYN when Dr. Mm -hmm. Lori Kiefer came to speak to um, the fellowship program at the beginning of the year. And I was just immediately in love and my jaw was on the floor um, when I heard about Trellis and, you know, the phenomenal clinicians behind it, um, both Lori Kiefer and Dr. Marla Dubinsky, both of which have become incredible mentors to me um, over the course of the year. 
I got to further network with Dr. Kiefer in person at DDW in May. So I kept expressing my interest and passion in what they were doing at Trellis. I've always been interested in, in mental health and um, looking to pursue a degree um, in clinical psychology in the future. And was just, again, like when you meet people doing phenomenal work, like like what Dr. Kiefer and Dr. Dubinsky are doing, it it's not just great work, but when the people behind it are as exceptional and passionate and interested. It almost feels to me in a sense still too good to be true. I feel like as a patient, a lot of times you kind of get this mindset of, I'm not really sure people are here to help me. And, you know, that's kind of, I've, I've internalized that quite a bit over the years of, yeah, like my doctor's here to help me and give me my medicine and this, that, and the other, but I'm not really sure that, you know, they're really invested in, in me and my quality of life and really you know, solving some of these problems and yeah. and what just blows my mind about Trellis and and their background is 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 how they're solving this problem of you know this 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 gap that we have as IBD patients where we leave the clinic and we're left to to juggle these hundred things with our disease and not really left with 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 much direction and how to do that and to have clinicians recognizing that problem and stepping in to solve it for us and with us it is just incredible. And I feel like truly, truly one in a million um, in, in this space. So um, next thing I know, I'm working with them and helping to give them more patient insight and create some patient focused content while also kind of using my medical copywriting experience as well. So in a sense, I'm really interested in GI psychology and um, really want to teach medical education in the future as well. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about Instagram and how you've made some of these connections. And it's a theme that I hear a lot. Um, people finding patient advocacy groups through social media, through Instagram, finding other patients that are like themselves, because all of our journeys are very unique. But sometimes we can find another patient that is similar enough to us that we can share those experiences and maybe feel not so alone. Another thing that I think you and I have in common is our love of the outdoors. Tell me, what are some of the things that you like to do? How do you manage it around your IBD and your other diagnoses? And do you have any tips for people who love the outdoors, but who are still trying to figure out how to merge that with the life that they're living as a patient with chronic illness? Yeah. Um, so prior to chronic illness life, I was a competitive indoor rock climber. Um, I trained over 20 hours a week and traveled around the country to compete nationally. Um, I also started to climb outdoors um, with my team that I trained with. And that sort of sparked my love for the outdoors kind of as, a, as an early teen. Um, and it was really challenging to lose rock climbing and lose that part of my identity um, as I, you know, kept accumulating, unfortunately, these diagnoses. Um, and so while I don't rock climb anymore, um, I've really found and connected with the outdoors through hiking, kayaking, paddleboarding, skiing, snowboarding, and camping. The biggest thing I've learned with my outdoor hobbies and since IBD and chronic illness came into the mix is moderation. Right. I'd love to go on a 10 mile hike or like ski multiple days in a row. I do have this crazy wild dream to compete in a triathlon one day. Um, I know it's that it's not a wild dream. You can do it. You can <laughs> make it you. happen. <laughs> I, I think I will one day. We'll start with a yeah. sprint distance. That's definitely okay. where we'll start. Um, but this idea of moderation and kind of figuring out what's what's appropriate, what's too much. 
Um, again, I'm always learning. I'm constantly overdoing it, but that's mm-hmm. how we learn, you know, so to kind of find ways to engage with all those activities while still trying to not put too much pressure on my body. But, you know, so this idea of moderation means it doesn't mean I can't enjoy any of these activities at all. I just have to find um you know, new ways of doing that. So for me, I do love paddleboarding, but I love kayaking even more because I can sit down. Right. So I found I can spend more time out on the lake when I'm sitting down mm-hmm. than I can when I'm standing up. So it's, it's you know, those small things like that um, that really make a difference. Um, I also last year got a small RV, a small 20-foot travel trailer, and that was a true game changer, I would mm-hmm. say. It's yeah. been a really fun and empowering way to enjoy the outdoors and escape reality a little bit um, while still having the comforts that we need in life with IBD. My RV has a full bathroom in it, and uh, I can't tell you the joy that it brings me <laughs> to pull over at a rest stop and just not have to go into these gross bathrooms or porta potties. <laughs> I just climb out of my truck, fold down the steps, climb into my camper, and use my own private clean toilet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's been absolutely phenomenal for me. Like I said, and also really empowering to kind of, you know, I go a lot by myself with with Morty, my dog, and just to feel that I can do something that previously I didn't think I'd be able to do again um, has really really paid off and made me a lot happier um, as a human being. But there's no all or nothing with this lifestyle. And that's kind of how I live my life. And especially with all my hobbies, there's always a middle ground that you can find. And there's always accommodations and ways to get things done. And that's especially true for hobbies and recreation activities. And so my advice is to find your middle ground, get creative with doing that, ask for help and try new things. But really just allow yourself to enjoy life because I think a lot of times we can get in these ruts where we feel like we don't deserve it. And I know I've struggled a lot with that. And I'm here to tell you, you definitely deserve it. You definitely deserve to find that self-care activity that brings you so much joy. And there are hobbies out there calling your name that you maybe haven't tried since you were diagnosed. And I'm telling you to go go try them and and let me know how you like them. Co-signed 100% down with that. So we've talked a lot about social media. Uh, you know, I'm laughing because your your dog, Morty, we've talked about a few times. Morty has his own Instagram. He does. So tell me about this. Tell me about Morty and tell me about Morty's Instagram. I've loved dogs my whole life, but I didn't really know how much like a dog could change you until I got Morty. Um, he's three years old um, and I've been thrilled to know him since he was three weeks old. If you can see by his Instagram, he's always smiling. And that's not just because I'm holding a piece of chicken jerky in front of the camera, <laughs> which I which I do. That's how I get him to look at me. But oh boy, he is always smiling and he is always super happy. And that's something that's helped my mental health in in amazing, amazing ways. Like, so very thankful for him and for dogs and pets and support animals everywhere. It's it's truly incredible. And yes, his Instagram is has also been a fun way for me to be funny, I think. Right. I don't know, especially yeah. in, in where I used to live in Southern California, that was like a thing. You'd mm-hmm. meet people walking your dog and you'd be like, what's your dog's Instagram? 
And uh, it's like a thing. You like have street oh, cred so if your right. dog has an Instagram. That's how I met a lot of my friends out there was oh our dogs on Inst- were Instagram friends. And I also have <laughs> stickers of Morty with his Instagram. So when we meet people and when we meet little kids, because he loves kids and kids love him. And mm-hmm. I'll give them a sticker with Morty's face on it. And so it, it's kind of it's become a, lo- a fun little hobby for me. And I I'm not a photographer by any means, but I love taking photos of Morty and it's been really fun to get to share them. And I don't really think my captions are all that funny, but they're all in Morty's point of view. So, well, I, you know what? I think you're doing a very fine job. So, so, you know, you are a photographer. Thanks. That's we're just going to say that right now. You are a photographer, dog photographer, dog photographer, first off. And then second off, I'm going to need one of those stickers. Oh, so. yes. <laughs> We we have a sticker pack at this point. We've got we've got four or five current stickers. I will definitely send them to you. Oh my gosh! Um, and if anyone wants to reach out to me on Instagram as well, I'll likely be able to send you some as well. Oh my gosh! <laughs> if yes, you find definitely. me at a conference, especially for all of our GI doctors listening, you find me at a conference. Not only will you get a CCYN sticker and button, but you can also get a Morty sticker. So that's amazing. Enticing. As if we didn't already have enough reasons to seek you out at a conference and spend a few minutes with you, now there's merch involved. Yes. There's swag involved. So, Mara, thank you so much for coming on About IBD. I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything that you've been able to share. I hope the experience has been cathartic. I recognize that I'm asking you to tell me about some of the worst, the worst things that have ever happened to you. But your story has value and has meaning. And what you're doing with Generation Patient and CCYAN and Trellis Health are going to impact a wide spectrum of patients. So take me through those some of your Instagram accounts before I let you go for real so that everybody can follow you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amber, again, for the opportunity. This has been really, really great. I'm looking forward to connecting more in the future as well. Um, so on Instagram, you can find me at Mara J. Shapiro. That is my personal account. You can find Morty on Instagram at Morty the Red Corgi. And on Twitter, I'm also at Mara J. Shapiro. I'm trying to get into the Twitter sphere. Oh, we'll I will get you into the Twitter sphere. Ooh, okay. It's coming. We'll we'll get you there because it is a very great space. And uh, it's a great space for GI. Just, I don't know why, but it is. So again, thank you so much. It's been really great connecting with you in a deeper way. And we're going to share some stickers with one another. And uh, thanks for being a friend of the pod. Of course. Thank you so much. Hey, super listener. Thanks to Mara Shapiro for taking me through her journey and explaining all the points along the way. Mental health is an important topic in the IBD community, yet it still doesn't receive enough attention. As we work to change that, I encourage you to continue to speak up, advocate for yourself or your loved ones, and support others in the IBD community. Links to a written transcript, everyone's social media handles, and more information on the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on my episode 123 page on aboutibd.com. You can follow me, Amber Tresca, across all social media as About IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. About IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. 
Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. I'm an excellent colonoscopy prepper. Um, so very proud of that <laughs> skill that I've accomplished. Um, it, <laughs> You gotta find the silver lining somewhere. You have to. So. I don't know. I'm just, I'm weird. I look at the photos and I'm like, yeah, I did good. 